Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode six of the third crusade called The Road to Jerusalem. In the last episode, we heard about how King Richard the Lionheart of England restored crusader fortunes by capturing Acre and then defeating Saladin at the Battle of Arsouf. The road was now open to Jerusalem. Or was it? In fact, Saladin's army hadn't been destroyed by Richard and was still a very powerful force. Although Richard was an incredibly courageous and skillful soldier, one of his qualities was caution on the battlefield, if not in his personal life. He'd shown this at the Battle of Arsouf when he held the Crusader knights back until they could make their charge at the best possible moment in the battle. Now he was careful about making a full attack on Jerusalem. Was he too cautious? Or did he show his normal, excellent judgment of a military situation? Find out in this episode. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In 1191, Richard the Lionheart was triumphant. In contrast, his great adversary, Saladin, had been humiliated. His army had been ineffective at Acre, and now it had been defeated in open battle at Arsouf. Like his great predecessor, Nureddin, Saladin, as he grew older, lost something of his energy and his command of men. His health was poor. He suffered from recurrent malarial attacks. He was less able than in his younger days to force his decisions on the quarrelsome emirs who were his vassals. Many of them still regarded him as an upstart and a usurper and were quick to show insubordination if his star seemed to be declining. He could ill afford to be outgeneraled by Richard. Above all, he must not lose Jerusalem, whose capture had been his most glorious triumph. He took his army in good order to Ramlah on the road to Jerusalem and to await Richard's next move. Meanwhile, the crusading army marched on to Jaffa and set about rebuilding its fortifications. Hitherto, Richard had had the fleet on his flank to keep him in supply. He was not prepared to march inland to the Holy City without a strong base on the coast. Moreover, after his long march down the coast, his army was tired and needed a rest. His caution and delay have puzzled many historians, for had he moved swiftly against Jerusalem, he would have found it poorly guaranteed and its walls in bad repair. But Saladin's army had only been defeated, not destroyed. It was still formidable, and even had Richard broken through to Jerusalem, it could have cut him off from the sea. It was therefore prudent to make certain of Jaffa before starting on the greater adventure. Nevertheless, the delay was too long. It enabled Saladin to strengthen the defences of the Holy City. Then, fearful lest Richard should move on Ascalon and establish a base there that would cut off the road to Egypt, his main source of manpower, he took part of his army from Ramla to Ascalon and methodically demolished the whole city, rich and prosperous though it was. Meanwhile, the Crusader army enjoyed the comforts of Jaffa. Life was pleasant there. Fruit and vegetables abound 
abounded in the gardens around the town, and the ships brought ample provisions. They also brought ladies from Acre to divert the men. The Saracens kept at a distance. There were only a few chivalrous skirmishes in the plain of Lydda, on the outskirts of the camp. The army grew indolent and soft. Many soldiers found their way back to Acre. Richard sent King Guy to urge them to return to the camp, but they took no notice of him. It needed Richard's own visit to Acre to gather them together again. Richard had his own worries. He wasn't happy about affairs at Acre, and further north, where Conrad's party was powerful. There was trouble in Cyprus, where Richard of Camville had died, and Robert of Turnham had difficulty in suppressing a revolt, and he feared what the French king Philip might do on his return to France. He solved his trouble in Cyprus by selling the island to the Templars, but he was also anxious to start negotiations with Saladin. Meanwhile, Saladin was ready to listen to his proposals and empowered his brother Aladil to negotiate for him. As soon as he reached Jaffa, Richard sent Humphrey of Turon, who was the best Arabic scholar in his army and for whom he had a deep affection, to Lydda, where Aladil was in command to discuss preliminaries for a truce but nothing was decided. Aladil was a skilled diplomat and restrained his brother's longing for a settlement. His diplomacy was given a wonderful opportunity when, in October, envoys came to him from Tyre, asking if he would receive an embassy from Conrad of Montferrat. Richard's first demand was for nothing less than Jerusalem with the whole country west of the Jordan and the return of the Holy Cross. Saladin sent back a reply that the Holy City was holy to Islam as well and he would not return the cross without some counter-concession. A few days later, on the 20th of October, Richard made fresh proposals. Like all the crusaders, he admired Aladil, whom they called Safadin, and suggested that Aladil should receive the whole of Palestine, at present owned by Saladin, and that he should marry the king's sister, Queen Joanna of Sicily, who should be endowed with the coastal cities conquered by Richard, including Ascalon. The married couple should live at Jerusalem, to which the Christians should be given full access. The cross should be restored, all prisoners on each side should be released, and the Templars and the Hospitallers should be given back their Palestinian properties. Saladin, when his secretary visited him with the offer, treated it as a joke. But Richard, naively, may have been quite serious about it. Queen Joanna, who with Queen Berengaria had joined him at Jaffa, was horrified when she heard the suggestion. Nothing she said, would induce her to marry a Muslim. So Richard next asked Aladil whether he would consider himself becoming a Christian. Aladil politely refused the honour, but invited Richard to a sumptuous banquet at Lydda on the 8th of November. It was a happy festivity, and they parted with protestations of affection, and each with many gifts from the other. But at the same moment, Saladin was entertaining in his camp, close by, the ambassador sent by Conrad of Montferrat, the charming Reynald of Sidon, whose trickery over Beaufort the Sultan had forgiven. Next morning, Saladin received Richard's Envoy Humphrey of Turon. He brought an offer that Aladil should be recognised as ruler of all Palestine so long as the Christians might have a share of Jerusalem. It was hoped that the marriage with Joanna might be arranged, though Richard admitted that Christian public opinion was somewhat shocked by the idea. A papal dispensation might, Richard thought, make Joanna change her mind. If not, Aladil could have his niece, Eleanor of Brittany, who as the king's ward could be married off without papal 
governmental interference. When all of this was settled, Richard would return to Europe. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. Conrad's offer was less sensational. In return for Sidon and Beirut, he would break with the other crusaders and even suggested returning Acre to the Muslims. But when asked if he would actually take up arms against Richard, his ambassador prevaricated. Saladin held a council to decide with which Frankish party talks should continue. Aladil and the other emirs voted for Richard's party, less perhaps from any liking for the king than because he would soon be leaving Palestine. Whereas Conrad, for whom they all felt some awe, meant to stay permanently there. Richard's proposals were accepted in principle, but Humphrey's supporters were distressed one day to see Reynald of Sidon out hunting with Aladil and on obvious terms of intimacy with him. Indeed, Aladil kept the negotiations spinning out until the winter came. Fighting between the armies had meanwhile been desultory and sporadic. One day late in November, Richard, when out hawking, fell into a Saracen ambush and might have been taken had not the valiant knight William of Pro shouted out that he was the king and let himself be taken prisoner. Some other knights fell that day, but apart from that small skirmish, there were no engagements of note. When the November rains began, Saladin disbanded half his army and retired with the rest to winter quarters at Jerusalem. Reinforcements were on the way from Egypt, but Richard refused to be discouraged by the weather. In the middle of the month, he led his army, increased by fresh detachments from Acre, out of Jaffa as far as Ramla, which he found deserted and dismantled by the Saracens. He waited there for six weeks, looking for a chance to move on to Jerusalem. There were frequent Saracen raids on his out posts. He himself was nearly captured when on reconnaissance near the castle of Blanchegarde. In another skirmish, the Earl of Leicester was taken but subsequently released. During the last days of the year, the weather was so bad that Saladin withdrew his raiders. Richard spent Christmas at Latrune on the edge of the Judean hills, and on the 28th of December, his army moved up into the hills, unopposed by the enemy. The rain fell in torrents. The road was deep in mud. A high wind broke down the tent poles before any tent could be put up. By the 3rd of January, the army had reached the fort of Bet Nuba, only 12 miles from the holy city of Jerusalem. The English and French soldiers were full of enthusiasm. Even the discomforts of the camp on the wet, windy height and the ruin by the rain of the stores of biscuits and pork that were their main food, the loss from the cold and underfeeding of many of their horses, and their own weariness and chills were bearable if they were so soon to attain their goal. But the knights that knew the country, the Hospitallers, the Templars, and the native-born barons took a wiser and sadder view. They told King Richard that even if he penetrated over the muddy hills through the storms to Jerusalem, and even if he could contain Saladin's army there, there was yet another Saracen army from Egypt camped on the hills outside. He would be caught between the two, and if he captured Jerusalem, they added, what then? The visiting crusaders, when they'd paid their pilgrimage, would all return to Europe, and the native soldiers 
soldiery was not numerous enough to hold it against the forces of a united Islam, Richard was convinced. After five days' hesitation, he sounded the retreat. Angrily and dejectedly, the army marched back through the sleet to Ramla. The English bore the disappointment sturdily, but the French, with their volatile temperament, began to desert. Many of them, including the Duke of Burgundy, retired to Jaffa, some even to Acre. Richard saw that to restore his men's spirit, some activity was needed. He held a council on the 20th of January and, with its support, gave orders to the army to move from Ramla through Ibelin to Ascalon. There he set about repairing the great fortress that Saladin had dismantled a few months before. Like Saladin, he well understood its strategic importance. He persuaded the French to rejoin him there. Apart from a visit to Acre, Richard spent the next four months at Ascalon, making it the strongest castle on the whole of the coast of Palestine. His men worked well in spite of much discomfort. There was no harbour there and the food supplies, which came by sea, could often not be landed. The weather that winter was consistently bad, but Saladin did not molest them. Some of Richard's followers thought that he chivalrously refused to attack them when they were so vulnerable to the discontent of his emirs. But in fact, he wished to rest his army and to wait for reinforcements from the Jazeera and Mosul. It may well be that some of his emirs were also discontented, though not because of his inaction. While they were in such a mood, he wouldn't risk a battle. Moreover, news from Acre showed him that the Crusaders were disunited. In February, Richard summoned Conrad of Montferrat to help in the work at Ascalon, and Conrad brusquely refused to come. A few days later, Hugh of Burgundy and many of the French deserted and went to Acre. King Philip had left the Duke with very little money for his troops, and their pay had hitherto been provided out of loans made by King Richard. But even Richard's huge treasury was running low. He couldn't finance them any longer. At Acre, the eternal rivalry between the Pisans and the Genoese, both of whom now had many men and ships quartered there, had blazed out into open war. The the Pisans, claiming to act in King Guy's name, seized the city in the teeth of Hugh of Burgundy, who had just arrived. They held it for three days against Hugh, Conrad and the Genoese, and sent to Richard to come to their aid. On the 20th of February, Richard arrived at Acre and tried to make peace. He had an interview with Conrad at the Kazal Imbert on the road to Tyre, but it was unsatisfactory. Conrad still refused to join the army at Ascalon, even when Richard threatened that unless he did so, all his land would be forfeited. It was a threat that couldn't be carried out. When Richard returned to Ascalon, having patched up a precarious truce, he was more than ever convinced that peace must be made with Saladin. He was still in touch with Al-Adil, an English envoy, Stephen of Turnham, visited Jerusalem to see the Sultan and his brother, and was shocked on his arrival at the gate of the city to see Reynald of Sidon and Balian of Ibelin emerging. Saladin's negotiations with Conrad of Montferrat had not been broken off, and Balian's presence was sinister, for he was a knight whom the Sultan great esteemed. However, on the 20th of March, Aladil rode down to Richard's camp with a definite offer. The Crusaders should keep what they had conquered and have the rights to pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The Holy Cross should be restored to them. They might annex Beirut also if it were dismantled. The embassy was well received by Richard. Indeed, as a mark of peculiar honour, one of Aladil's sons was girded with the belt of knighthood, although doubtless the usual Christian elements in the 
the ceremony were omitted. When Aladil rejoined his brother early in April, it seemed that a settlement had at last been reached. The need for the settlement was emphasised a few days later when the prior of Hereford arrived from England to tell Richard that things were going badly in England. The king's brother John was usurping more and more authority and the Chancellor William Bishop of Ely begged Richard to come home at once. Richard had spent Easter, the 5th of April, in the camp, furious because the remaining Frenchmen had just left him, summoned north by Hugh of Burgundy. Now more than ever the quarrels of the Crusaders must be stilled. A council of all the knights and barons of Palestine was called by the king. He told them that he soon must leave the country and that the question of the crown of Jerusalem must be decided and he offered them the choice of King Guy and the Marquis Conrad. To his shocked surprise, no one spoke up for Guy. It was Conrad whom everyone wanted. Richard was wise and magnanimous enough to abide by the decision. He agreed to recognise Conrad as king. A mission headed by his nephew Henry of Champagne set out for Tyre to give the good news to the Marquis. When Henry arrived at Tyre on about the 20th of April, there was great rejoicing. It was decided that the coronation should take place within a few days at Acre, and then it was understood that Conrad would at last consent to join the crusader camp at Ascalon. Henry left Tyre for Acre at once to prepare the city for the ceremony. On hearing the news, Conrad had fallen on his knees and asked God that if he were unworthy of the kingship, it should not be granted to him. A few days later, on Tuesday the 28th of April 1192, he was kept waiting for his dinner by his wife, the Princess Isabella, who was lingering too late in her bath. He decided to go round and dine with his old friend, the Bishop of Beauvais. He found that the bishop had finished his meal, so though he was pressed to stay while food was prepared for him, he walked home. As he passed round a sharp corner, two men came up, and while one of them gave him a letter to read, the other stabbed him in the body. One of the murderers was struck down on the spot. The other was taken and confessed before he was executed that he and his comrades were assassins sent to do the task by the old man of the mountains, the Sheikh Sinan. The assassins had preserved a quiet neutrality throughout the crusade, which had given them an opportunity to strengthen their castles and amass greater wealth. Conrad had offended Sinan by an act of piracy against a merchant ship laden with a rich car that the sect had bought. Despite Sinan's remonstrances, he had not returned the goods or the crew, who indeed had all been drowned. It is possible that Sinan also feared that the establishment of a strong crusader state on the Lebanese coast might eventually endanger his own territory. It was said that the two murderers had been for some time in Tyre, awaiting their chance, and that they had even accepted baptism with Conrad and Balian of Ebelin as their sponsors. But public opinion sought deeper causes. Some said that Saladin had bribed Sinan to murder both Richard and Conrad, but Sinan feared that Richard's death might leave Saladin free to march against the assassins, so would only undertake the latter task. Another theory, more generally held, was that Richard himself had arranged the assassination. Saladin's connivance is not to be credited, while Richard, much as he disliked Conrad, never made use of such a weapon. But his enemies, headed by the Bishop of Beauvais, refused to believe in his innocence. 
The death of Conrad was a blow to the renaissance crusader kingdom, harsh, ambitious and unscrupulous, yet trusted and admired by the native crusader nobility. He would have been a strong and cunning king, yet his disappearance had its compensations. The heiress of the kingdom, Isabella, was free to marry and bring the crown to some less controversial candidate. When Henry of Champagne heard of the murder, he hurried back from Acre to Tyre. There, the widowed princess had shut herself up in the castle and refused to hand over the keys of her city to any but the representative of the King of France or the King of England. Henry, on his arrival, was at once acclaimed by the people of Tyre as the man that should marry their princess and inherit the throne. He was young and gallant and popular and the nephew of two kings. Isabella yielded to the public clamour. She gave herself and her keys to Henry. Two days after Conrad's assassination, their betrothal was announced. There were some who thought that a longer delay would have been seemly, and indeed Henry himself was a little uncertain. Isabella was a very lovely young woman of 21, but she had been twice married already, and she now had an infant daughter who would be her heir. It seems that Henry insisted that the engagement should be ratified by King Richard. Messengers had brought Richard up to Acre, and there he met his nephew. It was rumoured that Henry told him of his doubts and of his longing to go home to his fair lands in France. But to Richard, the solution was clear. He advised Henry to accept election to the throne and promised that someday he would return with fresh help for his kingdom. He refused to give advice about the marriage, but Henry could not become king except as Isabella's husband. On the 5th of May, 1192, after just one week of widowhood, Isabella entered Acre with Henry by her side. The whole population came out to greet them and the marriage was celebrated with pomp and general delight. The princess and her husband then took up their residence in the castle of Acre. It was a happy marriage. Henry soon fell deeply in love with his wife and could not bear her out of his sight and she found his charm irresistible after the grimness of the ageing husband to whom she'd been forcibly united. As for King Guy, Richard had understood at last that no one in Palestine had any use for this ineffectual ex-monarch. But there was one place that he could go, and that was Cyprus. Richard had no desire to maintain officers there when he returned to Europe, nor were the Templars to whom he had sold the government wise in their treatment of the Byzantine Greek natives. They wished to return it to him, so he permitted Guy to buy the government from them, himself demanding an additional sum, which in fact Guy never fully paid. Early in May, Guy landed in Cyprus with complete authority to govern it as he pleased. It now seemed as if matters were ready for Richard to return home to deal with his troublesome brother, Prince John. But the treaty with Saladin had not yet been ratified, and Richard would decide to make one last attempt to recapture Jerusalem. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to leave any ratings or reviews, you'd be doing me a massive favour, especially if you leave them on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear what Richard the Lionheart did next in his quest to recapture Jerusalem.